is which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Sing it! Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? We are your hosts and comrades. I'm Rob. Hi, I'm Trisha. And today we're going to be talking about the Pullman strike, uh, also known as the Pullman boycott, uh, that started in Pullman, Chicago, which is now, or well, Pullman, Illinois, which is now part of the south side of Chicago. Um, a little bit of backstory into Pullman, Chicago, since that's where this whole thing started. <coughs> the town was built in the 1880s by George Pullman as working, workers' housing for employees of his railroad car company, the Pullman Palace Car Company. He established behavioral standards that workers had to meet to live in the area and charge them rent. Pullman's architect, Salone Spencer Beeman, uh, was said to be extremely proud that he had met all the workers' needs within the neighborhood he designed. The distinctive row houses were comfortable by standards of the day and contained such amenities like indoor plumbing, gas, and sewers, which, I mean, really in the 1880s was a quite uncommon thing. Um, there was right, a they were, they were planning ahead well there. Right. 
Yeah, for sure. They, they were building that to last, you know, and to be attractive to the people they wanted to draw there. Indeed. Um, um, during so, the depression that followed the panic of 1893, demand for the Pullman cars slackened. The Pullman company laid off hundreds of workers and switched many more to paper piece work. Uh, this work, while paying more per hour, reduced total worker income. So despite the cutbacks, the company didn't reduce the rent for the workers who lived in the town. So here they are like, hey, we built you luxury houses. Now we're going to cut your pay, but not lower the rent. Right. Uh, so just a little bit of a backstory here. The Panic of 1893... Uh, was an economic depression in the U.S. that began in 1893, ended in 1897. Uh, it affected every sector the, of the economy and produced political upheaval. But I just wanted to, you know, add a little... Um, Context? Yeah. 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 Workers initiated the Pullman strike in 19... Or, sorry, 1894, and it lasted <laughs> for two months. Uh, the 11th of May to the 20th of July, eventually leading to intervention by the U.S. government and military. The strike commission set up in 1894 ruled that the aesthetic features admired by visitors had little monetary value for employees. Um, so I'm not going to go too much deeper into Pullman, Chicago, but after George Pullman died, the Illinois Supreme Court required the company to sell the town because operating it was outside the company's charter. In 1889, the town and other major, major portions of the South Side were annexed by the city of Chicago. Uh, within 10 years, the city sold the houses to their occupants. After the strike, Pullman was gradually absorbed as a regular Chicago neighborhood uh, defined by distinguishing Victorian architecture. With the industrial and railroad restructuring beginning in the 1950s, Many jobs were lost in the city. The neighborhood gradually declined along with work opportunities and income. People began to move to newer housing in the suburbs. In 1960, the original town of Pullman, approximately between 103rd and 115th streets, was threatened with total demolition for an industrial park. So forming the Pullman Civic Organization, the residents then lobbied the city and saved their community, and it reached its peak population in 1970. Um, so I think the last thing that I really want to talk about is the demographic today. Um, the racial makeup right. of Pullman is 7.1% white, 82.8% African American, 0.5% Asian, and 1.1% from other races. Uh, and I wonder if it's always been that minority heavy or if that happened as part of the industrialization. I don't know. That would be good to look into and find out. Um, I'm scrolling through here to see if there, there's no historical reference, at least on this for that, but. Should see if we can find the census data from the 1880s when they first built the city. Although actually the census data even listed here for total population only goes back to 1930. Yeah, that's, yeah. So I don't, I don't think, 
based on my preliminary search, I don't think that that information is available. Um, so the, uh, onto the Pullman strike. Uh, it was a widespread railroad strike and boycott that severely disrupted rail traffic in the Midwest United States in June and July 1894. The federal government's response to the unrest marked the first time that an injunction was used to break a strike. Amid the crisis on June 28th, President Grover Cleveland and Congress created a national holiday, Labor Day, as a concili conciliatory gesture toward the American labor movement. In other words, much like Juneteenth today, it's a please don't riot concession. Right. Um, so, wow. In, in response, that puts Labor Day in context. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> In response to financial yeah. reverses related to the economic depression that began in 1893, the Panic of 1893, the Pullman Palace Car Company, a manufacturer of railroad cars, cut the already low wages of its workers by about 25%, but did not introduce uh, corresponding reductions in rent and other charges at Pullman, its company town near Chicago, where most of the Pullman workers lived. As a result, many workers and their families faced starvation when a delegation of workers tried to present their grievances about low wages, poor living conditions, and 16-hour workdays, fuck that, directly to the company's president, right. George Pullman. Uh, he refused to meet with them and ordered them fired. The delegation then voted to strike, and Pullman workers walked off the job on May 11, 1894. As soon as the plan had emptied, company represented posted signs at all the gates. The works are closed until further notice. Sorry, I'm going to have to catch you picking back up there. Do you have? At the time of the strike. At the time of the strike, 35%. <laughs> go ahead you're, you're good cut <laughs> well you didn't answer me you just sat there after i asked you do you want to pick back up there do you want me to and you sat there so okay i'll talk <laughs> at the time of the strike 35 percent of pullman's workforce was represented by the american railway union the ARU, which had led a successful strike against the Great Northern Railway Company in April of 1894. Although the ARU was not technically involved in the Pullman workers' decision to strike, union officials had been in Pullman and at the meeting at which the, the strike vote was taken, and Pullman workers undoubtedly believed that the ARU had backed them. When the ARU gathered in Chicago in June for its first annual convention, the Pullman strike was an issue on the delegates' minds. A great deal of sympathy existed in Chicago and elsewhere for the Pullman workers who were seen as common men and women tyrannized by an abusive employer and landlord. The question was how the ARU could support the workers who, after all, did not exactly work on the railroads. One plan was to refuse to hitch Pullman cars to trains and to unhitch those that were already attached. Another idea was a boycott. ARU members would refuse to handle Pullman cars or any trains with Pullman cars until the railroad severed their ties with the Pullman company. Fucking just going at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Some hardcore shit. I dig it. <laughs> On June 22nd. They're not playing games. No, right. For real. 
Uh, on June 22nd, the <laughs> ARU delegates passed a motion to initiate a boycott unless the Pullman co Company agreed to submit the dispute to arbitration by June 26th. During the next three days, several committees were sent to the company in the hope of winning concessions that would make the boycott unnecessary, but all were turned away. Crucial to the success of any boycott would be the switchmen who had joined the ARU in large numbers. The ARU's president, this name will be a little familiar, Eugene V. Debs, predicted that once the switchmen refused to add or remove Pullman cars from trains, the railroads would fire them and try to replace them with non-union non-union workers and that in turn would lead other union members to walk out in solidarity thus bringing more and more trains to a halt that scenario played out just as predicted on june 27th 5,000 workers railroads were tied up by the next day 40,000 had walked off and rail traffic was snarled on all lines of west west of chicago um, on the third day, the number of strikers had climbed to 100,000, and at least 20 lines were either lied up, tied up, sorry, 20 lines were tied up, tongue-tied, <laughs> or completely stopped. Uh, by June 30th, 125,000 um, on 29 different railroads had quit work rather than handle the Pullman cars. The ARU had few locals in the East or the Deep South, but the boycott seemed remarkably effective everywhere else. Uh, Debs may have been pleased by the effectiveness of the boycott, but he was also alarmed by the anger expressed by the workers, which he feared would lead to violence. Uh, during the first week of the boycott, he sent 4,000 telegrams, hundreds every day, urging the ARU locals to stay calm and not overreact. And on the 29th, he spoke at a large and peaceful gathering in Blue Island, Illinois, to gather support from fellow road workers. However, groups in the crowd came and set fire to nearby buildings and derailed a locomotive. Unfortunately for the strikers, the locomotive was attached to a U.S. mail train. Oh, Awkward shit. moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> that greatly upset Grove Cleveland. Um, so that strike is now prevented the federal government from exercising one of its most important responsibilities. So he was kind of pissed. <laughs> right. So um, the railroads coordinated the response through the General Managers Association, which had been formed in 1886 and included 24 lines linked to Chicago. The railroads began hiring replacement workers, also known as strike, strike breakers, which increased hostilities and many blacks were recruited as strike breakers and um, they, they feared that racism by the American Railway Union would lock them out of another labor, labor market, adding racial tension to the union's predicament. And uh, Debs, we, we just talked about Debs's uh, speech at Blue Island, Illinois. Um, you know, like the, the damage that groups within the crowd did uh, increased national attention. So, you know. Anyway, right. so, all eyes were on Pullman. Yeah, right. And then, uh, then the injunction. Given that most members of the ARU were either on strike or actively helping the strikers, 
that other unions had joined the cause and that wildcat strikes were breaking out against individual lines. And a wildcat strike is basically a strike that's not like, you know, approved by a union. Right. It's like, we're going with or without your permission or approval. Don't care. Don't need it. <laughs> right. The best um, kind. <laughs> right. Violence may have been <laughs> inevitable. Certainly, Debs continued right. to urge restraint. Like, uh, I mean, and bear with me because I'm bouncing between two articles about this to fill in the gaps, but uh, uh, he urged restraint. He was sending literally hundreds of telegrams per day, like back and forth with the strikers. And that's an yeah. important detail coming up, but we'll get to that. Um, but it was no use. When the sheriffs in Vermilion and Marion counties informed Illinois Governor uh, John Peter Altgeld, Altgeld that they Altgeld? Yeah. right that they feared that local labor actions would spiral out of control, Altgeld sent six companies of militia to Danville at the beginning of July and another three to Decatur with orders to quell any rioting and clear the way for trains. Uh, just another example of how the capitalist powers that be will always put property over human life. Right, that's just what they do. But uh, by early July, however, the federal government had already acted. In Washington, D.C., a majority of the president's cabinet supported Attorney General Richard Olney's demand that federal troops be sent to Chicago to end the reign of terror, he called it. Don't we still hear that kind of narrative now? Yeah, yeah, it's propaganda's like, bullshit, fucking painting something as this is a threat when it's like, yeah, no, these like, are people standing up for their human rights. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, for example, or George Floyd Square, we hear the same reign of terror kind of logic mm -hmm. and accusations as fear mongering. Yeah. Yeah, reactionary bullshit of like, oh my God, there's a portion of the city that's not accessible to cops. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Fuck, you know, um, that's, that's a good thing. That's called taking back your power. <laughs> right. But it, it's amazing how the people who always want to bootlick that hard to and pretend like everything must be maintained by law and order and the police, they're always the motherfuckers who never need the cops, for one, because, you know, you don't see people who are never exposed to any type of fucking actual societal problems and oppression having to deal with the fucking cops other than like, oh, you poor thing, did you get a ticket one time? You know, yeah. um, so I want to they don't see it themselves. I want to talk kind of briefly about who Richard Olney was. Richard Olney was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, but he had been a railroad attorney and still received a $10,000 retainer from the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad in comparison to his $8,000 salary as Attorney General. I'm just saying. Right. That puts shit in perspective, too. Um, on July 7th, he had obtained an abduction 
an injunction, sorry, excuse me, uh, from circuit court judges Peter S. Grosscup and William A. Woods, both of whom had strong anti-union sentiments Surprise. that prohibited the ARU leaders from compelling or inducing, right? And I'll put that in quotes too, of the compelling or inducing any employees of the affected railroads to refuse or fail to perform any of their duties. Fuck that. Fuck that. That's basically being like, you don't have the right to not go to work if you don't like the conditions. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, um, the injunction, which invoked both the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Interstate Commerce Act, also prevented ARU leaders from communicating with their subordinates. So Debs, who had been trying to prevent violence, could no longer even send those telegrams advising against it. Hundreds of telegrams a day back and forth. All of a sudden, there was none. So they they kind of forced the workers into this box, really. Right. They're giving them no option but to use violent means to defend themselves when they're literally being, you know, violated in such a manner to have a judge try to tell them, no, you have to go back to work. No, you don't. Right. So, um Basically, this injunction barred union leaders from supporting the strike, uh, you know, and demands that strikers stop or get fired. And Debs and other ARU leaders completely ignored the injunction, and federal troops were called up to enforce it. While Debs had been reluctant to start the strike, he threw all of his energy into organizing it. He called a general strike of all union members in Chicago, but this was uh, opposed by Samuel Gompers, head of the AFL, and other established unions, and it failed. And uh, I've said this before, but I want to do a piece completely on the AFL and then a piece on the CIO and then the piece on the AFL-CIO right. and how they became <laughs> like less and less radical over time. Um, and well, I mean, really, it started early. Right. And it seems to go back to that neoliberal frame of mind of always starting from a point of concession. Well, I mean, at that time, it would have been more classical liberalism. But yeah, either way, I mean, our system has always supported capital. It was designed Mm -hmm. to support capital. Yeah. Um, So city by city, the federal forces broke the ARU efforts to shut down the national transportation system. Thousands of U.S. Marshals and some 12,000 U.S. Army troops, commanded by Brigadier General Nelson Miles, took action. President Cleveland claimed that he wanted the trains moving again based on his legal, constitutional responsibility for the mail. However, getting the trains moving again... The hell was Sorry, that? it was my phone ringing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, there was somebody calling from inside the house. Mm. Anyway, so uh, getting can, the train. Can we just pause again. the record for a moment? I'm... President Cleveland claimed that he wanted the trains moving again based on his legal constitutional responsibility for the mail. However, getting the trains moving again would also aid his broader fiscally conservative economic interests and would protect capital an issue arguably more motivating to justify the violent military intervention than just mail disruption. Um, 
His lawyers argued. Governor Altgeld. I'm sorry. His lawyers argued that the boycott violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, which you actually already said, and represented a threat to public safety. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When you paused for a moment, I thought you were done with that part. (laughs) Um, Governor Altgeld was outraged. He immediately wired the president saying, surely the facts have not been correctly presented to you in this case, or you would not have taken the step for it seems to me unjustifiable. Despite Altgeld's repeated protests, though, Cleveland continued to send the troops, even though the state militia seemed quite capable of handling the situation. And worried that given the terms of the injunction, he could no longer exercise any control over the strikers. Debs at first welcomed the troops, thinking that they might maintain order and allow the strike and boycott to proceed peacefully. But it soon became clear that the troops were not neutral peacekeepers at all. They were there to make sure that the trains moved which would inevitably undermine the boycott. The strikers reacted with fury to the appearance of the troops. On July 4th, they and their sympathizers overturned the rail cars and erected barricades to prevent any more troops from reaching the yards. Um, ARU leaders couldn't do shit about it, prevented by the injunction from any communication with the workers. So uh, the state fucked itself on that one. (laughs) again um and on july 6th 6,000 rioters destroyed hundreds of the rail cars i love how the the tone changes to call them rioters there now instead of you know strikers right right well i mean that's that's uh, (laughs) and that's why i'm not using them as a sole source right um so i just want to interject with from the article, uh, the other article real quick, the arrival of the military and the subsequent deaths of workers and violence led to further outbreaks of violence. During the course of the strike, 30 strikers were killed, 57 were wounded, property damage exceeded $80 million. That was a lot of fucking money in 1894. <laughs> right. Dude, uh, the numbers are not matching up either because here this one says that uh although this might be just for july 7th um national guardsmen after having been assaulted fired into a mob killing between four and 30 people and debs tried to call off the strike urging that all the workers except those convicted of crimes be rehired without prejudice um i wonder you know if they're even referring to the same group of deaths was that another bunch of deaths a different day like they're just coming in well, people. well no By the um, time there was six... over the course of the strikes is the way it was worded okay okay uh thank um, you for clearing that up um, and, and, and remember yeah, was... how we talked about the general managers association which previously hadn't even been brought up in the britannic uh-huh. article by the way but anyway, right. the, the General Managers Association, the Federation of Railroads that had overseen the response to the strike, refused and instead instead began hiring non-union workers. Strike breakers. They don't use that terminology either. The strike dwindled and trains began to move with increasing right. frequency until normal schedules had been <clears throat> restored. Federal re- troops were recalled on July 20th. Um, the Pullman Company, which reopened on August 2nd, agreed to rehire the striking workers on the condition that they sign a pledge never to join a union. Uh, 
Um, so I wanted to talk about like local responses, which isn't brought up in that article either. Uh, the strike affected hundreds of towns and cities across the country. Rail railroad workers were divided for the old established brotherhoods, which included the skilled workers such as engineers, firemen, and conductors did not support the labor action. ARU mem members did support the action and often compromised unskilled ground crews. In many areas, townspeople and businessmen generally supported the railroads, while far farmers, many affiliated with the populace, supported the ARU. Um, in Billings, Montana, an important rail center, a local Methodist minister, J.W. Jennings, supported the ARU. In a sermon, he compared the Pullman boycott to the Boston Tea Party, <laughs> of course he did, and attacked Montana state officials and President Cleveland for abandoning the faith of the Jacksonian fathers. <laughs> In California, the boycott was effective in Sacramento, a labor stronghold, but weak in the Bay Area and minimal in LA. Uh, the strike lingered as strikers expressed longstanding grievances over wage reductions and indicate how unpopular the Southern Pacific Railroad was. Strikers engaged in violence and sabotage, and the company saw it as a civil war while the ARU proclaimed it was a crusade for the rights of unskilled workers. Public opinion was mostly opposed to the strike and supported Cleveland's actions. Republicans and Eastern Democrats supported Cleveland, the leader, the leader of the Northeastern pro-business wing of the party, but Southern and West Democrats, as well as populists, generally denounced him. Chicago Mayor John Hopkins supported the strikers and stopped the Chicago police from interfering before the, the strike turned violent. Uh, Governor Peter... Altgeld of Illinois, a Democrat, denounced Cleveland and said he could handle all disturbances in his state without federal intervention. Media coverage was extensive and generally negative. A common trope in news reports and editorials depicted the boycotters as foreigners who contested the patriotism expressed by the militias and the troops involved, as numerous recent immigrants worked victories on the railroads. The editors warned of mobs in anarchy, defiance of the law. And <laughs> the New York Times called it a struggle between greatest and most important labor organization and entire railroad capital. In Chicago, the established church leaders denounced the boycott, but some younger Protestant ministers defended it. So... Again, you know, you see the stuff coming into play where they're they're just trying to frame it as they're trying to take your jobs. Yeah. So the the sheer size and ferocity of the disturbances in which as many as 250,000 workers in 27 states had gone on strike, halted rail traffic or rioted inspired anxiety among many people. Harper's Weekly magazine declared that the nation was quote fighting for its own existence just as truly as in suppressing the Great Rebellion. Farmers worried about getting their crops to market and many others were concerned about the mail or what the strike would do to the price and availability of goods. Congress supported Cleveland's use of troops and the mainstream press in Chicago and elsewhere turned against Debs, the unions and labor in general. And that's gonna take us on to the court rulings. Uh, 
Um, so on July 7th, at the height of the violence, federal officers arrested Eugene Debs and four other ARU leaders for contempt of court for violating the injunction and for criminal conspiracy to interfere with the US mail. All five were soon released on a $10,000 bond. In December 1894, Debs and his co-defendants were tried before Judge Woods, who found them in contempt and sentenced them to three to six months in prison. The conspiracy charge was withdrawn during the trial. Debs and the others remained free on bail. However, while their attorney, attorneys, who by now included Clarence Darrow, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on the grounds that the defendants had been denied their constitutional right to trial by jury in a criminal case. In May 1895, Justice David J. Brewer delivered the unanimous 9-0 opinion of the court, which rejected Darrow's argument and upheld the government's use of the injunction against the strike. The ARU leaders surrendered themselves at the McHenry County Jail in Woodstock, Illinois in June 1895. And while confined, Debs began his journey from labor activism to socialism. And if you remember the Eugene Debs piece that we did, um, we kind of talked about him being in jail in Woodstock, um, being a, a large factor in his radicalization. Um, early in 1895, sorry, I jumped to the other article now. Uh, early in 1895, General I, Graham, I figured as much I was trying to get his name. Indeed, <laughs> erected a memorial obelisk in San Francisco National Cemetery at the Presidio in honor of four soldiers of the Fifth Artillery killed in a Sacramento train crash on July 11th, 1894, during the strike. The train wrecked crossing a trestle bridge report, uh, purportedly dynamited by union members. Graham's monument included the inscription murdered by strikers. Strikers, why did I say that all fucked up? The obelisk remains in place today. Wow. In the aftermath of the strike, the state ordered the company to sell off its re residential holdings. In the decades after Pullman died, Pullman became just another South Side neighborhood. Um, it remained the area's largest employer before closing in the 1950s. The area is both a National Historic Landmark as well as a Chicago Landmark District. Because of the significance of the strike, many state agencies and nonprofit groups are hoping for many revivals of the Pullman neighborhood, starting with Pullman Park, one of the largest projects. It was to be a $350, or $350 million mixed-use development on the site of an old steel plant. The plan was for 670,000 feet of new retail space, 125,000 square feet of re neighborhood recreation center, and 1,100 housing units. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, well, as far as the politics go, did you disappear into the ether again? Yep. Okay. Following his release from prison in 1895, ARU President Debs became a committed advocate of socialism, helping in 1897 to launch the Social Democracy of America a forerunner to the Socialist Party of America. 
He ran for president in 1900 for the first of five times, the final one from prison, mind you, as head of the Socialist Party ticket. <laughs> uh, civil as well as criminal God, charges. God, he was such badass. Dude, right? Right? Especially for a man of his age in that time to run a fucking federal campaign from prison. I can't even imagine. Right. That is a dope-ass move right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, civil as well as criminal charges were brought against the organizers of the strike. We kind of talked about that. The Supreme Court issued a unanimous, uh, unanimous decision that rejected Deb's actions. Um, Cleveland's administration appointed an, a national commission to study the causes of the strike. It found George Pullman's paternalism partly to blame and described the operations of his company town to be un-American. In 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court forced the Pullman Company to divest ownership of the town, as we've talked about twice now, um, as its company charter did not authorize such operations. Much of it is now designated as a historic district. We already discussed that as well. And then we kind of, we, we see the origin of Labor Day. In 1894, in an effort to conciliate organized labor after the strike, President Grover Cleveland and Congress designated Labor Day as a federal holiday. Legislation for the holiday was pushed through Congress six days after the strike ended. That's not a, that's not a coincidence. Samuel Gompers no, that's not. of the AFL, we briefly brought him up earlier, who had sided with the federal government in its effort to end the strike by the ARU, spoke out in favor of the holiday. That's how, that's how productive of a union the AFL was. They were like, oh, no, we can't strike. But, yeah, we deserve a holiday. What? <laughs> right. So now you get one more day off a year. Fuck, man. That, that's not really a compromise when it comes to the actual workers' rights they were fucking fighting for. Like, Motherfucker, pay me enough to live. How is one more day off a year going to make up for that? Right. <laughs> anyway, it's so, one of those uh, things that is done as a, a placation. I think that in terms <laughs> of like following the story of Debs that we should... Um... You know, talk a little bit about the social, not in this piece, but for the next piece, maybe in this series, we should uh, focus on the Social Democratic Party and then the Socialist Party, you know, to kind Sounds of good to me. continue the legend of Eugene V. Debs. Right. The badass himself. Right. <laughs> um, and then, and then, of course, the one after that would have to be the founding of the IWW, which is still around yeah. today and still one of the very few truly radical unions still around today. Right. Trying to remember. Didn't we do a piece on that already? The IWW? Oh, yeah, we did do a piece on the IWW. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Say so you had to think back for a minute. Like I, I'm pretty sure we did. 
Well, it's all part of the labor history series. So, you know, watch them in order, watch them out of order. You don't necessarily have to take them in historical order to understand the context and the gains made, the placations made, and where we still need to go from here. Right. And um, I don't believe that they are subject to copyright, but just in case they are, at the beginning of the episode, we heard Which Side Are You On by Pete Seeger. And um, the next one's going to be Solidarity Forever, also by Pete Seeger. We do not own the rights to this music. Um, I believe that they are not subject to copyright. And uh, thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook, For We Are Many. We have two groups, the For We Are Many Education and Discussion Group, which is quite an active group, and a uh, for the For We Are Many Mutual Aid Organizing Group. Basically, the goal of that is if you need mutual aid or if you are involved in giving mutual aid, post about it. We can all help each other. Indeed. Um, right. Every Monday we do a current event stream. It's a solidarity. Hell yeah. Uh, every week we do a, a current event stream on Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. That's available on our YouTube for We Are Many podcast, our Twitter at For We Are Many 2, and Facebook. Um, and then every Thursday we do a Revolutionary Left Book Club piece. Currently, we are, I believe, a little over halfway through Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party. And it's inspiring, to say the least. It is indeed. I love learning about the history there and the groundwork laid and why. It's beautiful. Indeed. Um, but anyway, this uh, outro song is Solidarity Forever. It was written for the IWW in like 1911, I believe. And um, I know that it, it, at least as recent as the 70s, it was sang as the opening of most UAW meetings. I don't know if that's still the case today or not, but it's a, it's a union song with a very long history that goes back farther than even Pete Seeger's rendition of it. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever solidarity forever for the union it is we who plow the 
prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong.